As we were reminded, though, this morning, Paul didn't pen these words as, you know, an instructional kind of how-to manual. He penned these words as a confrontation of abuse of the Lord's Supper and of what was taking place in the Corinthian church around the Lord's Supper. And as we get to this section again, right off the bat in verse number 17, you can see that they were charged with abuse that was so dangerous that they were doing more harm than good. You come not together, you can see that expression, you come not together for the better, but for the worse. And in verse 20, if you'll look there again, you can announce you're having a Lord's Supper service, but the reality is the Lord has nothing to do with what is going on in your midst. And in terms of the details of the charge, verses 21 and 22 give some specific details. In verse 21... There's a situation where some people are going away hungry and others are going away stuffed and it didn't happen accidentally. Verse 22 speaks of shameful activity towards those in the assembly who were, you might even circle that because it kind of stands out, those who were the have-nots. That's the bare expression there in the middle of verse 22. And we noted this morning What we think is the backdrop to these circumstances is the early church appearing to follow the same pattern of the Lord. Remember the Lord, the same night in which he's betrayed, in the upper room, celebrating the Passover, instituted this ordinance. And the early church following that pattern would often hold meals in the homes of the rich of the assembly and would there partake of the Lord's table. And it may well be that some, in this case of abuse, some were um, inviting those of their own status over prior to the others showing up. But whatever was happening, it's clear that some were not as welcome as others. And the feast connected to the Lord's table was part of communicating that. And in addition to that practical problem, and maybe you have that even outlined, The practical problem is that some were eating before others, some were going away stuffed, and others were going away hungry. That's the practical problem. In addition to that, there was a deeper theological problem. And this action was treating the church lightly. As the church was the body of Christ, to do this is to dishonor Christ himself. They were not discerning the Lord's body. They were, in verse number 22, they were despising the church of God. And against that backdrop, as we move into the section that we are most familiar with, the apostle seems intent on, on making the offenders realize the seriousness of that. Because verse 23, again, Jesus originated this institution on the night in which he is betrayed in that most solemn context. He was to be the central focus. Both verse 24, about the the broken body, and verse 25, the shed blood. As you partake in those symbols, do it in remembrance of me. He's to be the central focus. And in addition to that, verse 26, 
Every time you participate in it, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. You are proclaiming the gospel message. For you to eat then in an unworthy manner, in verse number 27, is to do something that is a serious offense. And I'm sorry that I did not really finish this point of emphasis this morning when I didn't go all the way to the end of verse 27. But notice this, to eat and drink of the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be, someone would be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So anyone that would be this self-centered, this focused on my cause and my social group, right up to the place of the Lord's table, even approaching these symbols of Christ's broken body and, and shed blood, to be that focused on me is communicated at the end of verse 27 as if you're joining in spirit with those who put him to death. Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Those are the problems explained. Again, practical problem, (coughs) theological problem, and now he begins to offer some solutions to those problems. What is the correction to those problems? And when he starts to call for correction, it appears that he gives it in reverse order. Which would be natural considering the flow here. So he had had the practical problem, hopefully you have a note there, the theological problem. And while he's still discussing that theological problem, while that's still fresh, now he's going to give its correction. What's the correction to the theological problem of despising the church of God, taking lightly the church. Well, the remedy in verse 28 is self-judgment. Notice, let a man examine himself, self-judgment, and we'll see as we continue that prevents God's judgment. Start with examining yourself before God has to deal with you. And he starts again, verse 28, with that exhortation, let a man, so let every man examine, or the idea is is judge himself. And if a man won't do that, there are several stages of discipline pointed to over the next several verses. Now, the question which has to be asked, is what exactly am I to be judging myself about? And we noted it this morning that sometimes when we get to the table of the Lord, uh, God's people can get very introspective, and in some cases you will even hear something communicated like this. Believers are exhorted to get every sin out of your life, because if you have any sin out of your life, when you partake, watch out. Right now, seeking to lay aside all sin in light of the cross is a healthy emphasis. That is a wholesome emphasis. But that isn't the point of this text. And I would also just remind us that if we we somehow go back to, I have to try to get all the sin out of my life to make myself worthy. Okay? 
I'm entirely missing what the unworthily is talking about in verse 27. Because I will never be what? I know I keep saying that, but I will never be worthy. The whole point of the Lord's table is that he gave his body to be broken and he gave his blood to be shed for unworthy sinners like us. <clears throat> to think that I can make myself worthy is entirely missing the point. And the specific point of, of examination, if I say, verse 28, examine yourself. Examine myself about what? In the context right here, I'm to be examining myself about how I am relating to others in my local church. The problem was, I'm not treating people right in my church. The theological problem is, I'm not highly esteeming the church as Christ's body. And what I need to examine myself about then, is whether I am somehow treating others, you know, that are below me socially, as if they somehow are not worthy of my Christian fellowship. I'm the examine, do I, do I get with the group I'm most comfortable with? Do I purposely make plans to leave others out that I'm not comfortable with? If I even zero right into verse number 22, I'm going to examine myself about, am I promoting an us versus them mentality? A haves versus have not mentality. If I am somehow operating within the church as if I'm promoting anywhere at any level an us versus them mentality, I need to realize that is entirely unworthy of the sacrifice of Christ. Hold your finger here or mark it somehow, but turn over to James chapter 3. I think there's some important challenge here in, in James chapter 3 about this possibility. Notice in James 3 and verse number 14. It says, if you have better envying and strife in your hearts. Then I'm going to pause here to say this is an occasion where we might miss what is really being under the microscope. If I think of bitter envying as something where I'm just boiling inside and I'm all upset, we are missing what's taking place here. You may even have a note right beside envying that talks about zeal. And, and an herb was bitter because it was harsh. Okay? Hard to the taste. This is communicating something here about there being even a harsh and strident zeal. In combination with that next word, strife, you may have a note there from previous study, that is the idea of kind of a get out the vote for me campaign. Okay? You, you put those together, and what it's talking about is I've got this agenda that I want to see happen, or I've got this agenda that I want to protect, and I, I'm trying to protect it, but I, and I have this zeal, but this zeal is harsh, and I'm willing to go around whatever back channels and, and manipulate and push and nudge and do whatever to make sure that I get my way. Okay? And, and people can couch... Wrong attitudes toward others, such as bitterness and envy and contention, 
and can do it in the most spiritual terms. I get somebody and say, you know what, I really think our church is lacking in this, or I'm really concerned about where that's headed, <laughs> and, and I can sound very spiritual with all kinds of insight, but what's going on is I'm kind of working the campaign. And James is saying, first of all, in verse 14, if you have that kind of thing going on, notice what he says, glory not... <clears throat> And lie not against the truth. What he's saying is be honest about what's going on. Drop the spiritual facade. You're about you and your cause right now. And then he continues in verse 14. And he says this wisdom. And if if there were quote marks, that's what it would be right there, right? This so-called wisdom or even so-called spirituality. Notice this. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, <coughs> sensual, devilish. And as he strings those three together, I don't think it's all of the above. You know, you could be operating with merely human wisdom, like others in the world do. Um, it could be that these qualities are showing up because of my flesh. That's the sad category. Earthly or now fleshly. It could be and the third one, that the devil is having far more of a direct impact on your life than you realize. But, whatever's going on, whatever the source is, when those kind of dynamics are operating in the heart, that isn't from where? That isn't from God. And furthermore, it's not going to help anyone. It's only going to hurt and destroy. Because look at verse 16. For where envying and strife is, there is what? There's confusion in every evil work. Sometimes people come across so discerning, seemingly, you know, they've got incredible insight onto something, and they start to work their way in the church and say that it's for the cause of the church, but when they start to work that way, they don't, it doesn't result in the edification and the progress of the church. It ends up resulting in more confusion and more evil and, and tearing down and hurting all along the way. But opposite of that, verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's where growth takes place. The point in James is don't bring the truth of God into reproach by claiming that your contentious spirit arising out of bitterness or envy is actually spiritual. It's the farthest thing from it. Now, turn back to 1 Corinthians with, with even that kind of further development in mind about how this can transpire. And back in 1 Corinthians 11, when you operate that way in a church, you just simply aren't going to get away with it. Verse number 29. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. People who persist in that and 
And it is amazing what happens once we sink our teeth into a campaign for me cause and church division. It's amazing how hard it is to let go. And people that won't <coughs> let their motives and their spirit come under the microscope and they stay at it. What they are bringing on themselves is, it says here, damnation. And the word is used to describe in some places eternal punishment. It is not always used in those type of contexts. And <coughs> other times it refers more generally to just somebody reaching a negative verdict. And there's a, a punishment that is attached to it. Guilty, and here's the sentence. It is a bit difficult for us to know, especially right now, what is meant here. And, and perhaps it was intended to remain general at this point. So as the apostle says, look, when you operate that way in your church, you bring God's disfavor upon your actions. And sometimes that's going to mean discipline that really is intense. And the second part of the prescription. So the first part, examine yourself about how you're operating. The second part of this one for handling this problem is, is stated negatively. He draws attention to what the Corinthians are not doing. And according to verse 29 again, their eating and drinking unworthily exist alongside of, look at it there, not discerning the what? Not discerning the the Lord's body. Now, the reference to the Lord's body in this verse has been understood in different ways. I'm going to walk through them because you may have heard them in different ways. Some see this as regarding, as referring to the symbols, and they regard Paul as saying, look, you're not treating those symbols of the Lord's broken body and his shed blood. You're not treating those in any more of a sacred manner than the common food you eat at, you know, your table. Others regard the reference as basically being a repeat of verse 27. So when Paul at the end of verse 27 <coughs> says that you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, it's as if he comes back to verse 29 and again says, you're, you're joining in spirit with those who crucified the Lord and spilled his blood. In, I believe that in the context, though, this is most likely a reference to the body of these believers that the believers in Corinth made up, right? The body referring to a local expression of the body of Christ. I believe it's referring to their church. You are not discerning the uniqueness and the value of the church. <clears throat> I, I'm saying that in part because look back at chapter 10 and verse number 17. It's interesting, the connection that is being made here. Chapter 10, verse 17. For we, being many, are one bread and one what? And one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. All of us that are believers in Christ together here, we partake of one bread and we are part of one what? We're part of one body. Look on the other side of our text. Look at chapter 12. <clears throat> chapter 12 and in fact even just come down to verse 12 for as the body is one and hath many members all the members of that one body being many are one body so also is <clears throat> Christ 
For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Again, that is a reference to the church, which is the Lord's body. And, and if we're right on this, about this not discerning the Lord's body, not discerning the uniqueness of the church as the body of Christ, then what Paul is saying here, verse 29, is, is that your actions, emphasizing these social distinctions at this most solemn church function, they are reflecting the fact that you are not properly discerning the uniqueness of the church. So, self-examination. And, secondly, give a proper estimation of the uniqueness and value of the local church. Now, brethren, that, that still needs to be heard, and it will need to be heard as long as we live on this earth, because we get so used to living in our culture and, and our social distinctions in common everyday life that we, we can just bring them right over into the church. And when we do that, we are not discerning. We, you, we may think and treat the local church like it's just another organization that you can take it or leave it. You know, there are all kinds of bandwagon-type fans of various organizations. We talk about that with team sports sometimes. But it can be part of any... Look, when any organization is getting bigger and better and, you know, rolling along, everybody wants to be part of it. When it seems to be struggling, people bail. And, and you might think, well, we do that in life. I mean, I'm getting out of this business. We're losing money. You know, I can, see the, I can see the clouds forming and we're in trouble. And let's get out of here at the first chance possible. We bring that mentality over into the church and have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Or we take what might happen, you know, in a lunchroom, uh, at, at the job site, and say whatever you want to whoever you want. And we're not discerning when we think that way. We live in a society of free speech, and I think we're all thankful for that. But we live in a society where public criticism of secular authorities is just part of our way of life. It's almost like patriotic to criticize our politicians. And some people seem to see nothing wrong with adopting the same approach and campaigning for their special interest in the church. And so we criticize our politician. I'll criticize my Sunday school teacher. We criticize our governor. I'll criticize the deacons. We criticize our president. I'll criticize the pastor. We poke at whoever is in leadership, and, and I'm not getting my way. I don't like what's going on. I get the people who will, will give me a hearing, and, and we just feel... we. We take, you know, we criticize the refs, we criticize the coach, we criticize whatever, and, and we take it right over into our church. And, and it may be part of our culture, it may be part of our political process, but it is out of place in the local church. Proper discernment about the local church regards it as something uniquely and highly valued by God 
a place where people endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because that glorifies God who created the church. That kind of discernment, the kind of discernment that says, look, this isn't my job, this isn't my sports team, this isn't political, this is Christ's church. That kind of discernment leads people to work hard at promoting peace and unity. And it is not peace at all costs. The wisdom that is from above, back in James 3, is first what? It is first pure. So it is not peace at all costs. But it is first pure and then it is peaceable. And even when something substantial is at stake in a church... My approach to it should be communicating an earnest desire to promote a peaceful resolution. Because we're talking about Christ's church. That's what's at issue. And as we continue on in the text, there, there is an urgency to applying these remedies. Because God will chasten those who don't deal with themselves. And you can see in, in verse 30... It really is amazing, and, and maybe, some, maybe some of us have heard it for years, and so we kind of just move past it. But he says that there are, in verse 30, there are some current illnesses, and there have been some premature deaths. There are current illnesses, and there are premature deaths. For people who did not properly discern the uniqueness of Christ's church. People who thought, just like I criticized my sports team, I criticized the leadership of the church. <clears throat> people that think just like, you know, I got this terrible boss and undermine what's going on in the company. I don't, I don't have a problem doing with that with the church. Paul says, look... And, and, and he says it's not a few. For this cause, what does it say? Many are weak and sickly among you, and many. How many people in gospel-preaching churches have died prematurely because of their role in church conflict and church division? And again, as we continue to move forward, it's interesting that that, that that type of chastening could be prevented. In verse 31, if you go back there, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be what? It's like he goes back and says, look, I said examine yourself, and if you don't, here's what's coming, and you hear that and you get sobered, I'm telling you, listen, go back and Examine yourself again and deal with it on that level. <clears throat> and I think you know what it is, brethren, if you've walked with the Lord long enough, that you begin to realize that even chastening of this kind of nature, when, when whether it's God takes away you know, physical health or God takes away something financially or God takes away a relationship or God, <clears throat> God does something circumstantially and there's times we don't always understand but there are times that that God does something and it's clear I mean this is the chastening rod of God and 
And God, even through the preaching ministry and his spirit, just like goes after me. Do you ever know God going after you in a service? When God does that, and I, I think if you've walked with the Lord, you've known what this is, to actually realize that that is the mercy of God. Have you ever, have you ever recognized God's disciplining me, and you just stop and say, God, thank you, that you didn't let me continue to go the way I was going. Thank you that you love me enough to not let me get away with this. <clears throat> and the thrust of verse 32 is that these present judgments are disciplined to prevent us from coming under future judgment. Notice, when we are judged, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. I didn't, so God chastens. I didn't control myself, so God chastens. There are times when my kids were little, and I have a talk, and I'm trying to help you. Are you listening? Or are you going to need more help? More help was what? <laughs> no, that's all right, Dad. I don't think I need more help. I'll listen. This is the kind of thing that God's saying. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm using my word. My spirit's convicting. <clears throat> I'm disciplining. Is this enough or do you need more? And if we don't respond, he brings more. And when he brings more... Verse 32, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord to prevent this. That we should not be condemned with the world. That judgment that is spoken of here now is a final and eternal judgment. This is condemnation with the rest of who? Verse 32. The last word is what? This is condemnation with the world. So the thought process and, and progression in this passage is if we don't respond to God's warnings, God chastens. If we respond by repenting and breaking off our sins, that prevents the necessity of future judgment. But if we will not respond to God's chastening, we're giving evidence that we are still part of this world and we will be judged with the world. And brethren, this is not the first time in, in this book that the Holy Spirit has really warned people this way. Look, look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is not the first time that he's warned that if you persist in injuring a church, you will suffer eternal punishment. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm, I'm just dropping in to verse number 16, <clears throat> where we read, Know ye not that ye, and I'm, I'm just stopping there to say both of those ye's are plural. All right, so plural, a reference to all the believers in the church in Corinth. All right, know ye not that this church is the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man destroy the temple of God, which in this context, and he's just even given it, the temple of God is the what? It is the church that the Spirit of God indwells. 
If any man destroy the temple of God, <coughs> him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? You the church, you are. And it's interesting in the Greek language, you were talking on Wednesday nights that, you know, uh, from one language to another, there's, there's different order, subject, verb, object. It can be in, in different order in different languages. But in this case, what is, what is really interesting is that in the Greek text, the, the, the words destroy are actually back to back. Look at the last phrase. If any man destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy. In the Greek text, here's the order. If any man, the temple of God, destroy. Very next word is destroy him. God will. It's there for emphasis. If any of us destroy, if any of us, God's church, destroy, destroy that man, God will do. That's the point of emphasis. So when God gets a hold of us and tells us, shut our mouths. (laughs) When God gets a hold of us and says, deal with that art. And, and don't be about your own interests and don't be envious and don't be contentious and don't be divisive. And he exposes that to us. We get the opportunity to respond so that we don't injure the church because we injured the church and God destroys us. And after addressing the larger theological issue, and you can see that's taken up mo- uh, most of the time, most of the text, he, he concludes with some very practical advice for the practical problem. Remember, we had practical, theological, now we have theological correction, and now practical problem. And if you go back to chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, the, the practical problem at one level is just so simple. But in verse 33, when you come together to eat, do what? Wait! Don't start eating your meals until everyone's present. You know, both rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots, whatever that, whatever that distinction is. And, verse 34, if you just can't wait for everybody to get there, then do what? Eat more at home before you come. Right? That's the place to do it. So, practically... Practically, it's what? Practically, it's be considerate. Think about others first. And the the primary application surrounding all of that is, is carefully safeguard church unity. Matthew 5 and verse 23 says, If you bring your gift to the altar... You come to worship, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled with thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Don't go through the motions of worshiping God when you've been offending a brother and doing damage to the body of Christ. Deal with that now. 
And as that is the, the primary application, again, the reason is deeper than just, you know, being considerate to people. The, the reason is because the church is the what? The church is the Lord's. It's his body. This ordinance is, the, is what he ordained. He's to be the central focus. We're proclaiming his gospel every time we take part of it. Every one of his churches is near and dear to his heart. And, and the one reason for us being rightly related to others is, is his pleasure, the desire to properly represent him. I mean, just think about this. Be ye kind, tenderhearted. Do you know this? Be ye kind. Say it. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath what? Hath forgiven you. Work hard at keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Place a high value on the fellowship and ministry of mutual edification. Keep personal agendas and social distinctions out of it. Because the church is his body. And I know that you may have heard this. I heard it to the place that it almost sounded trite and I wasn't thinking of it anymore. So for years, I, 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 I didn't use it. But as one of our previous deacons used to say, that the ground is equal at what? The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. It is really the cross that should destroy all of those distinctions and divisions. We are common recipients of the merits of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Then we are heirs and joint heirs together, all of us on an equal standing with God. And that ought to destroy any of our pride and any of our agenda and any of our self-promotion. Would you turn in your hymnals to number 117? 117. 